Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Life with GDPR, a podcast where I work in conjunction with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, and a well-known data privacy, data protection expert. However, first, as you know, the Compliance Podcast Network is always expanding, and I'm looking for new podcasts. Have you wanted to do a podcast but didn't know how? Take a listen to our sponsor this week, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In today's episode, we take a look at some of Jonathan's predictions for 2019 in the world of data protection and data privacy. This includes topics on both sides of the Atlantic, obviously GDPR, but also what does the U.S. scene look like legislatively and business reputation-wise for data privacy and data protection. This is a fascinating exploration of a very interesting set of issues and queries. I know you will enjoy it. Life with GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode of Life with GDPR with Jonathan Armstrong. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you very much, Tom. Jonathan, I thought we might take things in a little bit different direction uh, today. And although we're in the middle of Q1 2019, uh, ask you what are some of the things you see in the veiled land of the near future, i.e. the rest of 2019 in law, tech, and uh, perhaps uh, uh, data privacy, data protection, but really just maybe look into the future as opposed to uh, as we've looked into the past to see where that might take us. I'm always conscious of predictions. Just a, a quick question for you, Tom. I don't know whether you've seen that deck of slides doing the rounds, but um, how do you become a futurist? I don't know. Apparently, you just produce a deck of slides telling people you are, uh, and then you say it confidently, and then you change uh, the word could when you're making predictions to will. And apparently, if you follow those three rules, then you're allowed to call yourself a futurist. So I'm always worried of future predictions uh, for that reason, if no other. But let me give you six that, things. That actually rivals uh, how to become an FCPA expert. How's that? Uh, can you spell FCPA? <laughs> or a UKBA? Yeah. And you can have be duly experted. <laughs> so I'm going to have to remember those three points. Listen in. Boys and girls. Um, yeah, so six things, uh, as I say, being wary of uh, predictions. Number one, drones. I think we're going to see an increasing number of issues over drones. Obviously, we've concentrated on that to some extent from a security point of view. We've had issues, you know, for example, in the UK around airports. We're extending the no-fly zone around airports or increasing the technology around airports. But we're starting to see cases which impact on GDPR and drones. Um, we've had a, uh, an organization uh, ask us to look at the GDPR aspects of uh, drones already, and it's somewhat challenging. Often, of course, uh, in this particular situation, it was a third party uh, wanting to overfly over the uh, uh, over our client, the area where our client's employees might uh, congregate for uh, safety and security related reasons, all for the very best of reasons. But I think we're going to see increasing concerns 
from employees, for example, over the use of drones. And like any form of video footage, they're always very difficult to deal with from a GDPR point of view, and also particularly uh, when subject access requests are made. So if somebody says, you know, I think your drone flew over me, can I have all of the footage? What is the exercise involved in going through that footage to work out whether that person was underneath the drone, whether the image at the top of their head is actually them, etc., etc.? So anybody who's thinking of using drones or allowing drones to be flown over or near their premises uh, needs to do what's called a data protection impact assessment. And I think we're going to see more of these cases reach courts and reach regulators over the use of drones and similar surveillance uh, type technologies. As the cost goes down, the use increases, but people often don't think about the legal compliance risk. Actually, that seems to me, that question seems to me to be have been answered by the Jehovah's Witness case here in the UK, where it was basically geographic data that was being recorded. And here is another form of geographic data. It's just visual. Yeah, it's, it's an EU case. And it, it is about, we talked about this on an earlier podcast, I think, about knocking on doors and mapping and, right. and location, et cetera, et cetera. And it is clear that in most cases, GDPR is going to apply. There are, uh, as was rehearsed in the Jehovah's Witnesses case, there's a limited exception effectively for private purposes. So a leisure drone flight might not count. But again, the, the, those lines are pretty blurred. You know, if I'm running my drone around, I don't know, a beach in Cornwall, then uh, am I really doing it purely for personal and domestic reasons? If I'm going to put it on my Twitter feed to, you know, promote a, a holiday home I rent out, is that really a purely domestic use of the drone? So I think these lines are going to blur, particularly when people are ch chasing followers on Instagram, particularly when people are chasing views on YouTube or whatever. I think it's a, a, a challenging area ahead. And as I said, the answer is that you have to do a proper data protection impact assessment. I think even a domestic user probably should do that anyway if there's any element of commercialization of, uh, of that. Um, the second two, uh, uh, the number two and number three, are probably pretty easy to deal with for any observant listener to these podcasts. Uh, note sarcastic English humor <laughs> in, in note. Uh, 2013, uh, 2019 will be the year of the data breach again. Um, that's probably been a safe prediction uh, every year since about at least 2012, but we'll still see significant volumes of data breaches. Um, you know, about 42,000 as at the end of January reported under GDPR. That number will clearly increase. We'll see a rise in GDPR enforcement action. We'll see a rise in GDPR class actions. We'll see a rise in GDPR complaints. And significantly, we'll see a rise in GDPR-like legislation uh, all around the world. Uh, maybe uh, that will involve uh, US federal legislation. You would know that better than me, Tom. I certainly wouldn't predict that for 2019. But we've already seen countries like Japan uh, introduce or, or, or spruce up their own legislation to get an EU adequacy decision. And obviously, a lot of countries will be chasing EU adequacy decisions 
in 2019 to permit the transfer of data from the EU to those countries and depressingly uh, the UK may be one of those countries chasing an adequacy decision in 2019 as well because of Brexit. Um, prediction number four is perhaps a little bit off the wall. I wanted to pick a couple that were off the wall and a couple of bankers. Um, a more off the wall one, I think, will be an increased look at issues like uh, artificial intelligence and things like self-driving uh, cars and so on. Obviously, to uh, work, they have to collect a lot of data. But in many cases, these um, applications aren't truly autonomous. You know, for example, in the UK, the speed limit on the motorway is 70. But if I drive down the M1, the main motorway from the north to south, in the fast lane at 70, people will flash me to speed up. So if I'm programming an automated car for that, what do I tell it to do? Do I tell it to break the law and drive too fast to keep up to the road speed? Or do I tell it to obey the law at all times and hold up the traffic flow? So that's probably just one example of where even though we call these things autonomous, we've got to have them work to a, a rule set. And I'm slightly geeky about this because um, I uh, tried to uh, do admittedly very, very early, very unsophisticated um, programming like this in the mid-1980s uh, when we got a half-day a week released from school. Some of us were, you know, were sent to, to a college to do very early days of machine learning and I tried to teach a computer program to go from um, from Hartlepool to Blackhall Rocks. I realised that's a very niche uh, geographical <laughs> ge geographical limitation on my work, but but it's it's very challenging to program machines to do stuff that we do instinctively, and as a result, I think we're going to see these challenges between whether the puppet is truly responsible for what happens or whether the puppet master is. So we're going to see some interesting challenges, I think, including around GDPR and the use of data and the analysis that's made on that data and including things like, you know, sensors in cars that are collecting data on other road users as they progress along the road. And how do you fulfill your GDPR obligations to disclose that data back to people who might have uh, had their data collected just as the way in which Google had issues with StreetMap uh, collecting data on Wi-Fi routers and so on as their cars moved along the street. Um, uh, and a couple, I think, that are more easy to explain. Um, I think we're going to see more and more concern over the influence of data in elections. We've obviously got this large investigation in the UK against uh, Cambridge Analytica, and we've talked about this before on these podcasts, which has now led to criminal uh, prosecutions. It's led to GDPR stop notices, and the ICO still has a big team looking at that. Uh, there's been a, 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 um, 
a sort of grand inquiry that the UK Parliament ran with the uh, Canadian Parliament and various others, which was held in London, where um, Lord Allen, uh, a Facebook representative, was questioned by parliamentarians on what Facebook was doing to stop um, uh, people using data to push advertising to influence elections. And I think that's going to be a real topic for debate in 2019. And perhaps my most frightening and one that we've touched on in various of our podcasts is about what I would call the uh, industrialization of internet crime. So just as in the, you know, if we look at, I don't know, um, Ocean's Eleven, we see that uh, it's a while since I saw the film and your bedroom films the meet on, but Danny Ocean assembles a team together to do the best heist on the casino. And he has somebody who's really good at safe cracking and somebody who's really good at climbing up walls and somebody who's really good at rope work or whatever that might be. We're seeing that in the internet arena as well. And whether these gangs are gangs in their truest sense or whether they're virtual gangs and, you know, this guy's particularly good at hacking into a corporate environment, this guy's particularly good at the social engineering bit of making people send money, this guy's particularly good at collecting the money, and whether they formalise as a gang to play to their separate skills, or whether they're just um, uh, people who are there for hire as a one-off, or whether it's somebody saying, I've got an exploit on X website, and I'm going to auction it at 5 o'clock Tuesday, the highest bid wins this exploit, and we get people who are good at social engineering bidding to obtain that zero-day exploit to get in. Whatever way it works, we're seeing an increased sophistication in cybercrime, and we're seeing, at least anecdotally from where I sit, an increased, almost a development of specialties within the cybercrime world. And it's wrong to think that cybercrime gangs do this, that, or the other. I think we're seeing them mutate, and particularly as some nation states who've trained people in very sophisticated uh, hacking techniques bow to commercial pressures, if you like, or become more susceptible to them. And people who realize that when they've worked for government for one bag of corn, they can go into the private sector and earn four bags of corn. My worry is that we're going to see a real, uh, we're already starting to see, but we're going to see a greater movement of people out of state-sponsored cyber into uh, being, you know, pirates for hire. Uh, And that, I think, is an emerging trend that we're seeing and something that I think we'll see much more of in 2019, which obviously tells us that corporations particularly need to strengthen their resolve and strengthen their resources to deal with that different threat. So let me unpack that a little bit because you started off by describing the difference in the Thomas Crown Affair, original version, versus uh, Ocean's Eleven. And in the Thomas Crown Affair, uh, Steve McQueen as um, Thomas Crown uh, actually brought together four individuals on a completely ad hoc basis to perform a heist. 
and it was dramatized in the uh, movie uh, by a building with uh, entrances on each corner, and each man came in from a different corner to really emphasize the ad hoc nature of it. Ocean's 11 uh, and moving to Ocean's 12 really emphasized the thief unit, the burglary unit made up of friends and even colleagues who each had a different skill so that they could bring a different skill to bear to pull off the heist or heists throughout the movie series history. The um, And both models are, are I think, well-known within the criminal world. Certainly uh, many movies about bank robbery movies where you had a dedicated crew, uh, Heat, for instance, or movies uh, and uh, French noir specialized in stories of ad hoc gangs, mm-hmm. which would come together to rob a jewelry store or a bank. So it doesn't surprise me to see that model also reappear in the cybercrime world. Uh, with regard to the states... And sorry to interrupt, but I think there's a third model where the gang actually don't know each other. And, and I think that's the slightly different spin in the cyber world that it's relatively easy to go onto the dark web with an asset that you're selling. And whilst the gang might look like it's joined together, that there's an exploit, a list of, you know, corporate telephone directory, a bank account, etc., etc. Those individual bits in the thief supply chain might not actually be connected at all. All that connects them is some cryptocurrency paying for that asset further down the chain. Uh, Once again, close. (laughs) But in the Thomas Crown Affair original version, (laughs) uh, when they came in from the separate, they did not meet. Right, right. And when they came in to meet Tommy, uh, Thomas Crown, uh, he actually had a torchlight behind him. So they were blinded and they couldn't see him. And they came in individually and they had no idea of the other's uh, identity or actions, and they had no idea of his identity. So uh, everything old is new again. Yeah. Uh, but the, um, the the state-sponsored cyber attacks, we had a discussion a little bit earlier this morning about um, hackers who appear to be more ad hoc from a former uh, the former Soviet Union or former Soviet states, uh-huh. as opposed to the Chinese who appear to use more of a state-sponsored model. Um and one uh, explanation could be that the state-sponsored model is really more of a much more long-term game, focusing on infrastructure or other damages that could uh, be brought to bear in either a shooting war or an economic war, whereas the uh, ad hoc actors really um, outsourcing the hacking are uh, much more transactional and much more focused on uh, not only ad hoc attacks, but attacks that bring much quicker benefits, usually in the form of a cryptocurrency payment. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, the two models, unfortunately, corporations have to uh, defend uh, against both. But let me turn to a topic that I've had uh, been researching a little bit in the United States, and that's the issue of um, cyber insurance. Yeah. That, that's become uh, significantly important, obviously, uh, in any risk management portfolio, how much of your risk you can uh, offload via insurance is a critical component of, of any business analysis. But insurers have uh, put up some fairly robust resistance to payment of claims, utilizing some some pretty basic uh, insur- traditional insurance requirements, such as notice, for instance. And when did you give notice? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, 
So if we go back to Target, for instance, it was months before they gave external notice or even Equifax, weeks. Yes. And the insurance companies are saying, well, we were damaged. Yeah. And we, uh, on an equitable basis and by contractual requirement, you didn't give us notice within a notice period. So that's sort of one defense. And then the um, whether they uh, companies had, as you would call them, the TOMS or the tech, tech, technical and operational measures uh, to prevent an attack, if you don't, are you negligent? Mm-hmm. Or is that an intentional act on your part, uh, equivalent to burying your head in the sand? Uh, so I find it really interesting that this extraordinarily important part of a risk management portfolio is still um, being sorted out, uh, yeah. and particularly this issue of notice. And that's where actually I think GDPR is going to help companies because now they are forced to, by law, disclose within 72, excuse me, 48 hours, 72, 72 hours. And so that's going to meet almost every notice requirement I'm familiar with in an insurance policy, both a a primary and a surplus uh, lines policy. But if we continue to have in the United States, uh, U.S. companies not disclosing Mm. uh, to anyone they've had a data breach, really for their own reasons of um, shareholder value, shareholder notice, reputational damage, or fear of of shareholder litigation, they may find themselves in the extraordinarily uncomfortable position of not having insurance available. I think that's right. I mean, I'm... I'm, um, we also have been looking at, at the insurance market in, in uh, uh, perhaps not in as much detail as you, but I think the market is definitely evolving and is definitely in a state of flux. And I think the issues that you uh, describe are certainly relevant. In some of the data breaches that we've seen, corporations are not routinely looking at whether they're insured for the risk. And if they are, they're almost focused on telling the regulator instead of their insurer. And that usually must, I think, be wrong. You know, if you have a security breach, um, because there's a theoretical penalty of 4% of your turnover, potentially 6% of your turnover if you've got a security breach and delay the report, then that must be material, mustn't it, to most corporations. So it's not necessarily, if you, if you have an insurance policy, I'm not an insurance law specialist, but when I was at law school, we used to be told about something called the, uh, the obligation of uberme fides, so utmost good faith. If you insure a risk, if there's anything that you think the insurer would want to know, then you have to tell them. Now, in areas like this, how do you know what the insurer wants to know? You've probably got to tell them to find out whether they do want to know. So we're going to see a lot of cases, I think, around not telling the insurer in time, not telling the insurer at all, and as you rightly say, not having adequate technical and organisational measures in place. And the barrier for that, I think, is going to uh, increase because sometimes insurers are going to hire their expert to say that this thing could have been prevented by... Um, In cases like Target, that was probably going to be relatively easy to do because there was an alert on the system that nobody noticed. They'd already paid for that monitoring service. They just weren't watching. They weren't listening for the alarm bell when it rang. Or they did hear it and they ignored it. So we're going to see, I think, um, some, I mean, rightly, I think, denied coverage in insurance cases. And I think we're also going to see crystallized 
in the minds of response teams the fact that they need to look at multiple reporting organization, uh, obligations. And for many, the way to do that is going to be to have a technology platform that walks them through the decisions that they've got to make based on a fact pattern. So it's going to be things like, do I have to report it to the regulator? The tool is going to guide them through that. Do I have to report it to my insurer? Here's a specimen notification. Do I have to tell the stock exchange? Increasingly, that's going to be relevant in cases, particularly if the theoretical penalty is 6% of, uh, of, of revenue. And you might say, well, the fines aren't going to be that high. They're not going to be that material. How do we know? They're almost certainly not going to be at the 6% level. They're almost certainly not going to be at the 4% level. But if you're, I don't know, an outsourcing company and you get fined even a dollar, you are going to lose contracts and you're going to lose the opportunity to bid for other contracts. So how do you know whether a dollar fine is material or not? So we're going to have to get people make that decision much quicker, as you say, within 72 hours, probably earlier. If we're going to have to tell a stock exchange, we're going to have to make our minds upon that pretty quickly. If we're going to not tell the stock exchange but tell our people not to trade shares to avoid an insider trading allegation, then we're going to have to make our minds up quickly. So people are going to have to invest in decision trees. They're going to have to realise that being hacked is a when, not if. Having a security breach is a when, not if. When you realise that it is going to happen to you, statistically, it happens to the best corporations at least twice a year, then you invest in processes to deal with that inevitability rather than invent processes on the remote possibility it happens. It also sounds like, in addition to a very sophisticated uh, tool that uh, perhaps we could uh, talk about on a later <laughs> podcast, the need for insurance companies to assess their insurers yes. and to bring in experts to assess uh, data uh, protection, both from the technical perspective and the operational perspective as well. Yeah, and again, insurance, just like anything else in this space, isn't a job for amateurs. You have to use you know, a proper uh, insurer. You'll probably want a proper advisor to walk you through the various policies uh, as well and tell you what's covered and what isn't covered and what your reporting obligations are going to be. Well, we are today at the home of insurance, Lloyd's of London, uh, or at least in the city of London, perhaps a, a coffee shop uh, outing would be appropriate. So, Jonathan, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time today, but this has been a fascinating exploration of uh, what we may see in the veiled land of the future. My pleasure. Thanks. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. If you have any questions for me, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jonathan at jonathan.armstrong at quarterycompliance.com. As I mentioned at our opening, I'm looking for a new podcast for the Compliance Podcast Network. So if you had an idea for a podcast, please let me know. If you'd like me to produce a podcast for you, I also provide that service. This is Tom Fox. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Life with GDPR.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.